Good morning, Moberly. It's wonderful to worship together, isn't it? Is that going to play again? I don't know. I thought I heard something coming up behind me there. Good to see all of you. I'm glad for that little video break. It gives me a chance to kind of catch my breath after that great singing this morning. If you have a Bible with you, take it and open to your New Testament. We're going to be in the book of Philemon. It's actually a letter to an individual named Philemon when the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Colossians, which we've just spent 20 weeks looking at. He actually sent two different letters to the church at Colossae. He wrote the letter to the church, and then he wrote a letter to an individual in the church by the name of Philemon. And so uh, it's a, a small book. It's easy to miss. If you have trouble finding it, there's a little thing in the front of your Bible. It's called a table of contents, and it's there to help you. So you can look into table of contents, find the book of Philemon. It's just one chapter, so it's probably going to be one page. It's going to be right in front of the book of Hebrews. So if you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far, just skirt back a little bit. And I'm going to give you a chance to find it. While you're looking there, let me just uh, make a quick uh, announcement letting you know about something that's coming up in uh, the month of, of March. Uh, our church-wide emphasis in 2023 is what I've called the Homefront Initiative. It is an encouragement to you in 2023 to make Christ the center of your life beginning at home. Uh, my, my walk with God really begins at home. It begins in my own home, with my family, with my wife, with my kids. And we wanna encourage you in intentional ways uh, to make Jesus the priority at home. And so uh, that has, has uh, begun with a challenge that I made at the beginning of the year um, to what I've called the daily formation challenge, which is a challenge and encouragement for you to commit to a daily time in scripture and in prayer. And hundreds of you have signed up and committed to do that this year. And it's been an awesome start to the year. The second challenge that we're laying before you this year is what I'm calling the family devotional challenge. And I wanna just say a word about that before you break into cold sweats, okay? I'm challenging you in the months of March, April, and May for 12 weeks, okay? That's three months to have a once a week family devotional at home. That's a, a weekly intentional spiritual conversation apart from what's happening on Sundays with your family at home. And uh, if you have kids, you can do this with your, your spouse and your children. If you say, I have no idea how to do this. Well, if you'll go to mobbly.org slash family devotion, or you scan the QR code, which will be there for a minute or so, <clears throat> that, that will bring you to a place where you can sign up for this and you'll actually get resources that will help you to know how to do this. Okay, so if you've never done it before, I just want you to, to, to know it is easier than you think, it is more simple than you think, and it is more powerful than you can imagine. And we're gonna put tools and resources into your hand that will empower you to be able to do this. Now, I want you to know if you're a parent in the room, you are the most important spiritual influence in your kids' lives. Amen? More important than a pastor or a, or a minister or a youth pastor. Uh, mom and dad, you are the primary spiritual influences in your home. So we really wanna encourage you to take up the mantle of spiritual leadership and lead uh, your, your kids or your family at home. You say, Pastor, I don't have any kids. Well, if you, you can do this with your spouse. If you're married, you can have an intentional spiritual conversation with your spouse once a week. It's not too much, once a week for 12 weeks. 
If you say, Pastor, I'm not married. Well, guess what? You're part of a spiritual family, a church family, a faith family, and you can actually get together with other members of your faith family once a week to have an intentional spiritual conversation. So if you're a college student, you can get together with your roommates or college friends. If you're a widower or a widow, you can get together with others on a Saturday night. Listen, it's always a good excuse to get together on Saturday night, cook some waffles, have a spiritual conversation, a, a devotional together with your faith family. Can I get a witness? Waffles and Jesus, hard to beat. So all of you, it doesn't matter who you are or what station of life you're in, all of you can participate in this. And I think you'll find it transformative uh, for your home to participate. So I wanna give you a heads up a month in advance to where you can sign up, you can begin to get resources and encouragement as we do this together as a church family over the course of, of 12 weeks. Have you found your way now to the book of Philemon? I hope I've given you enough time, that little commercial break, to be able to find your way to the book of Philemon. I wanna speak with you on the subject just for a few moments this morning. The gospel can fix anything. Many of you have seen, if you've watched the news over the last couple of months or if you watch late night uh, talk shows, that Prince Harry uh, of the royal family has written a book uh, by the title Spare. And it tells his story. Prince Harry has kind of become the, a black sheep in the royal family. And uh, the, the title of the book, Spare, uh, comes from a nickname that his dad gave him uh, that's kind of an unfortunate, derisive nickname. Uh, when his older brother, William, was born, that was the heir. And then when Harry was born, uh, Charles said, well, now I have an heir and a spare. You get it. So that's where the title of the book came from. And, and in that book, he, he tells his life story. He spills the tea about the... Thank you, uh, about the royal family. <laughs> he shares all kinds of, of drama and hurt feelings and the kinds of family brokenness that uh, none of you would want your child to go on the news to talk about. And yet he's written about it and put it all out there. And I've watched a few of the interviews that he's done and I'm really fascinated because he gets asked this question again and again uh, over the course of many interviews. He gets some form of this question, which is, <clears throat> You know, after you've essentially told the public, you've aired the dirty laundry, uh, all this family brokenness, do you think that forgiveness and restoration is ever possible? Will you ever be restored to your family? That's the question. And maybe you've wondered that as well. Maybe there are situations in your life or relationships in your life where you feel like such damage has been done to a relationship that you're unsure if forgiveness and reconciliation is even possible. And maybe you're at odds with, with someone. There, there's something out of place in the relationship and you wonder if it can ever be made right. I want you to know the gospel can fix anything. And the Bible has a word for when broken relationships are put right. The word is reconciliation. And I wanna talk with you about that from the book of Philemon. The word reconciliation is actually an accounting word. It's got a finance background to that word. If, if you have... Uh, uh, you know, accounts that don't match up, right? A ledger that's at odds. One account is higher, the other is lower. There's some anomaly or some error. There's a mistake present. To reconcile accounts is to take those two differing sets of records and make sure that they come into alignment. So you are reconciling something that's out of place. And that's a word picture for us to understand what reconciliation in human relationships and in our relationship with God is all about. Because the reality is, 
Apart from Christ, every single one of us is at odds with God. There's something fractured and broken in our relationship. And the good news of the gospel is that through the work of Jesus in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that we who are at odds with God can be made right with God, that we can be reconciled and restored to him. But that's not just true of our relationship with God. Once you come to know Jesus, it's also true in our relationship with other people. That through the work of Jesus, even if you are at odds, even if something is broken or fractured in our relationship with other people, that Jesus can make it right. That Jesus can restore what's broken. That he can mend the hurt. That he can reconcile people who are far from one another. And that's what Philemon is all about. Philemon is about reconciliation. It's Paul's shortest letter. It's only 25 verses. In the Greek New Testament, it's only 355 words. And there is a story behind the letter, okay? To understand what's happening in the letter, you need to understand the story, the background of, of what's happening. In the story, you're introduced to uh, two primary characters, a, a man named Philemon and a man named Onesimus, okay? Can we say that word together? Onesimus, you sound great. Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon um, is a wealthy slave owner. And he also is the host of a church that meets in his home. It's actually the church that, in Colossae. So look, look with me at Philemon chapter one. It's only one chapter. So actually look at Philemon one. That's verse one. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and coworker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. You see that right there? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philemon, his wife Apphia, and their son, Archippus, host the church at Colossae in their home. But, but there's another major character in the story. His name is Onesimus. And Onesimus actually was a slave that belonged to Philemon. And at some point in the past, Onesimus ran away. Now, who could blame him, right? Slavery, unequivocally, is evil. It dehumanizes people. It does not honor the image of God. Uh, we, we as Christians affirm the dignity, worth, and value of every human, amen? From the womb to the tomb. And so slavery is a terrible evil. And Onesimus, uh, understandably, runs, runs away from Philemon. And not only does he run away, though, he, he actually steals something that belongs to Philemon, something of great value. He's a thief. So he's a runaway, escaped slave, and a thief, now, in that world, that's a devastating thing. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But what happens with Onesimus is that he runs away from home, and the textual evidence hints that he met Paul in prison. Perhaps he was caught for being a thief or maybe for stealing something else. And he's in prison. He meets Paul. Paul leads Onesimus to faith in Christ. And God radically gets a hold of Onesimus' life. And Paul begins to disciple him. And actually, he becomes a co-worker and a companion of the Apostle Paul. Now, here's where the story gets a little tricky because Paul now has led Onesimus to Christ, discipled him. He's now a co-worker in ministry. But Paul also knows Philemon, Onesimus' master. So Paul knows now Philemon and Onesimus, they're both now brothers in Christ. And Paul knows that the relationship is at odds. 
and that it needs to be made right. And so Paul does something bold and risky. He writes a letter to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf, urging Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to, to be more than that, to be reconciled to Onesimus. More than that, to release Onesimus from slavery and instead receive him as a brother, as a member of the family. And then Paul does something even riskier. He sends this letter to Philemon by the hand of Onesimus. So imagine being Onesimus. You're a runaway slave. You've been saved now by Jesus, discipled by Paul. Now Paul is sending you to Philemon with the letter in your hand, pleading for mercy and reconciliation. Imagine how risky. To just understand how risky that is, you need to understand a little bit about the background of slavery in the ancient world. Slavery was a predominant part of Roman culture. In fact, in the city of Rome, it's estimated that a third of the population were slaves. That's two million people. It's estimated that across the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. So slavery is just a part of everyday life in Roman culture. And many of those slaves were, uh, were captured in war and brought back to Rome and forced into slavery. You do have a few slaves who voluntarily chose indentured servitude. In fact, they're called bond servants. You see that word in the New Testament, bond servant. And they would do this to, to pay off debt or sometimes even to increase their social status if they worked for someone who was part of a kind of an upper echelon of society. But, but mostly this is something that was not chosen. It, it was forced and it was for life. It was shameful. It was embarrassing um, it was oftentimes, you know, there were certainly examples in the ancient world of slaves that were treated well, but, but many slaves who were mistreated and slavery was often associated with violence, with what one person called um, uh, alienating social death and public dishonor and shame. Now, for a slave owner, to own many slaves, was a, it was a, a status thing. So the more slaves you own, it displayed your wealth. It would be like, you know, driving a Benz or wearing a Rolex. It was something you, you owned slaves and you wanted everybody to know it. And so you would put them on public display. And it was an incredibly shameful thing in that world for you to have a runaway slave. And so the consequences for being a runaway slave were steep. If you ran away from your master in that world, what would happen is if you were caught, you would be branded that shows the inhumane cruelty of the institution. You'd be branded with the letter F on your forehead that stood for fugitivus, fugitive. Or if you had stolen something, which is the case in Onesimus's life, you would have the words cave furum, beware of thief, branded on your forehead. And that was kind of the minimum consequence. Slave owners would often execute by crucifixion runaway slaves who had been caught. Crucifixion, of course, is the worst way to die in the ancient world. <clears throat> there was a story uh, in the ancient world of a man who owned 400 slaves. One of them killed the slave owner, and the consequence was that all 400 were executed. So this is the cultural context in which the letter to Philemon is written. Now imagine being Onesimus. You've run away, and you've stolen something, 
You've been changed by Jesus. You've been discipled by this man named Paul who now sends you back to your former master with a letter pleading for mercy and more pleading for reconciliation. So I want you to see what the letter says. We're gonna see um, what one commentator called some grace-filled arm twisting. Paul writes to Philemon. He does not demand for Philemon uh, to act, but instead he appeals to him on the basis of their mutual faith in Christ to be restored to Onesimus, to show him mercy. And so I just want you to, to see a couple of headings this morning. First of all, I want you to see an appeal for reconciliation, and then secondly, an admonition about reconciliation, okay? So there's an appeal, and then there's an admonition that Paul makes. So here's the first thing I want you to see, just an appeal for reconciliation. Look down at verse eight. Uh, uh, Paul writes this, for this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. So Paul's writing to Philemon here as a brother in Christ. And he's, he's writing like a father writes to a child to encourage the child to do the right thing. He's saying, I could command you here, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to appeal to you, not on the basis of a law I'm laying down here, but on the basis of love. In other words, it's the love of Christ. It's the mutual love we have for the saints. I'm, I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. I, Paul as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. So he's appealing here, okay? No command yet. For 16 verses, verses one through 16, Paul is not going to lay down a single command. He is just writing to Philemon to appeal to him to do the right thing, which is to release Onesimus and be restored to him. <clears throat> he does what's called grace-filled arm twisting, what I call a little sanctified buttering up. Okay, he's gonna butter Philemon up a little bit before he urges him to take action. And so I want you to see how he does this grace-filled arm twisting. He's gonna appeal to two things before making any requests. He's gonna appeal, first of all, to Philemon's own reputation and his own Christian commitments, and then he's gonna say a word about Onesimus and the change that Jesus has brought to Onesimus' life. And he's gonna use those two things as a basis for his appeal. So look what he says about Philemon. In verses four through seven, he says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So Paul begins here by reminding Philemon of his own reputation as a Christ-like person, reminding Philemon of his own Christian commitments. And he says, I'm gonna appeal to you on, on behalf of Onesimus, but before I do that, I just wanna remind you of who you are in Christ. That something about who you are in Christ should cause you to act a certain way to someone who has taken something from you. Paul's saying, Philemon, I'm gonna ask you to do something difficult, but it's in keeping with the kind of believer I know you to be. It will require love. Philemon, I know that you are a man of love. You love all the saints. You have a reputation of being a man of love, and so it's gonna demand faith, but I know that you're a man of faith. 
And I know this is going to refresh my heart. So first appeal here is just simply on the basis of who Philemon is. But the second appeal is on the basis of what's happened to Onesimus. He's going to talk about Onesimus's conversion and his transformation, what God has done in Onesimus's life. That's going to be a basis of his appeal. Look down in verse uh, 10. Paul, Paul points out four things about Onesimus. Number one, we see it in verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. So the first thing Paul's going to say about Onesimus is that he is now Paul's spiritual child. That Paul has now become his spiritual father. Notice the language here. Paul does not refer to Onesimus as a slave, but as a son. And this is who we are when we know Jesus. We move from slavery to sonship. And even though in the ancient world, Onesimus would have been treated like a piece of property. Uh, uh, in that world, Philemon could have been a quote unquote justified for laying down heavy consequences. Paul is saying, look at what Jesus has done with this man. I've become his father. He is my spiritual son birthed to me while I was in prison. And so before you act in revenge, before you execute justice, Philemon, let me remind you not only of who you are, but let me remind you of what God has done for Onesimus. And in verse 11, Onesimus once was useless. Now he's become useful. Look, verse 11, once he was useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. And Paul's using a word play. The word Onesimus in Greek, you know, every, every name has a meaning, right? You, uh, the name Andrew, my name, you know what it means? Manly. It's a true story. Google it. It's pretty awesome. Onesimus' name means useful. That's what his name means. He hasn't been very useful to Philemon. He ran away from him, and he stole some of his stuff. But Paul says Jesus has changed Onesimus in such a way that the one who was useless has now lived up to his name. He's become useful both to you, Philemon, and to me, Paul. Number three, he's a servant of Paul now. Look at verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. Boy, notice that phrase. We're gonna come back to that in a few minutes. Verse 13, I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want you to do anything without, I didn't wanna do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. There again, grace-filled arm twisting. Paul says, look, Jesus has changed Onesimus in such a way that he, he's not a slave, but he is a servant. And he's become useful. He's serving me in prison. And I want you to have the opportunity to serve me by, by freeing him. And then finally, verses 15 and 16, Paul says he's now a brother in Christ. Look at verse 15. For perhaps this is why Onesimus was separated you from, from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently. Look at verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother, dearly beloved. He's especially so to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is a picture of what happens when we come to know Jesus. We move from alienation to adoption. We move from slavery to sonship. We move from people who, who are outside the house to people who are part of the family. And Paul is writing, before he asks Philemon to do anything, he's just reminding him of some gospel truths. He's reminding him of what God has done in Onesimus' life. He's reminding him, 
Listen, the reason that you are to receive him back and be restored to him is because he's not a slave anymore. He's been set free by Jesus. And I'm writing to you to say, don't receive him back as a slave. Receive him back as a member of your own family. Because that's who we are when we come to know Jesus, amen? We become family. All the social boundaries that we tend to draw to make us different from one another, all of that is erased at the cross. The ground at the foot of the cross is equal. And this is why, listen, theologians say that it was this verse that laid the ground for the abolition movement. Because you can't believe the gospel and support slavery, amen? And so this laid the foundation. Paul is saying, you've got to understand who your brother is. You gotta understand, you're not gonna receive him back as a slave, but as family. Now he hasn't asked for anything yet. 16 verses, just buttering Philemon up a little bit. Little grace-filled arm to us. Let me remind you, Philemon, of who you are in Christ, and let me remind you of what Christ has done for Onesimus and who he now is in Christ. Now he shifts in verses 17 through the end from appeal to admonition. Admonition, a strong encouragement, a, a command, an instruction. Verses one through 16, there's not a single imperative, no single command. But now in verses 17 through 20, you see three imperatives in rapid fire. Paul's gonna give him three instructions. Here's the first one. Here's what I'm asking you to do, Philemon, on the basis of the gospel, the basis of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done for Onesimus. This is what I'm now calling you to do in this broken relationship. This is what restoration is gonna look like. Verse 17, here's the first thing he tells him. I want you to welcome Onesimus as if you were welcoming me. If you consider me a partner, he says in verse 17, welcome him as you would welcome me. Paul is asking Onesimus, excuse me, Paul is asking Philemon to go beyond forgiveness with Onesimus. Forgiveness, listen, is releasing your right to revenge. That's what forgiveness is. It is releasing and letting go of my right to hurt you because you've hurt me. That's forgiveness. But that's actually not what Paul is asking him to do. He, that's entailed in this, but he's actually asking Paul, uh, Philemon to do something more. He's saying, not only do I want you to release your right to exact vengeance on Onesimus, I want you to do something beyond that. I want you to welcome him. And I want you to welcome him in the same manner in which you would welcome me. I want you to welcome this undeserving person in the same way that you would welcome me who does deserve it. You can treat the undeserving like you would the deserving. And I want you to welcome him back. The picture that comes to my mind when I read this verse is the story of the prodigal son. Because, you know, there's a lot of parallels between these two stories. In Philemon, you have a runaway slave. In Luke's gospel, you have a runaway son. Uh, the runaway slave causes dishonor to his master. The runaway son causes dishonor to his father. They both run away. They both turn and come home. And in the story of the prodigal son, think about it. Here's your son who has dishonored you. He's taken his inheritance early. I mean, the relationship is totally broken. When he returned home, imagine the fear in the prodigal son's heart that could have been there. Like, will my dad receive me back? I mean, the, the father would be 
totally justified to just reject the son and say, you know, good riddance, I'm done with you. And sometimes we treat each other that way. Like, you've hurt me, good riddance, I'm washing my hands of you. But that's not how the father responds to the son. No, he welcomes him, doesn't he? He welcomes him. In fact, he puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. He gets a fattened calf and slaughters it. He fires up the barbecue. He goes out and invites his neighbors and honored guests to come and he throws a party. Why? Because my son who was lost has been found. He welcomes him back. And that's what Paul is saying to Philemon. Don't receive Onesimus back as a disgraced slave. Receive him back as an honored son. Welcome him and welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome, give the, the one who is undeserving the kind of welcome he would have if he was deserving. Now, listen, I hope that you hear a little bit of the gospel in that. Because isn't that the heartbeat of what Jesus has done for us through the work of God the Son in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? You and I who don't deserve it can be welcomed into the presence of the Father as if we do deserve it. That's called substitutionary atonement because we are clothed with the righteousness of God's Son. God the Father welcomes us into his presence as if we were as righteous as his own Son because in Christ you are. In Christ, the Father does not see your sin, your brokenness, your shame. The Father does not look at all the ways that you're undeserving. When the Father looks at you, if you are in Christ, the Father sees the righteousness of his Son. And so you get welcomed in the same way that the Son would be welcomed. And Paul, who understands that reality, writes to Philemon to say, welcome this undeserving one like you would welcome me. If y'all were charismatics, you'd be running up and down these aisles right now. <laughs> Here's the second instruction, the second admonition, okay? Number one, welcome him as you'd welcome me. Number two, it gets real gospel-y right here. Verses 18 and 19, charge what he owes to my account. 18, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'll foot the bill. Paul didn't owe it, but he paid it. He paid what he did not owe. And then he does something unusual. You don't see this very often. Verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul takes the pen and says, this is important enough that I'm gonna take the pen in my own hands. I'm going to write this part. I will pay this. And then here, a little a little more grace-filled arm twisting. Not to mention, Paul says, I love this, not to mention that you owe me your very own self. That's, that's pretty rich. Paul, Paul says, okay, I'm gonna pay what he owes, but just remember you owe me. Amen. Amen. All right. Don't you hear gospel notes Onesimus owes you, but you owe me. So I'm going to pay what I don't owe that Onesimus owes. I'm going to pay it for him, even though you owe me. This is what Jesus has done for us, folks. We owed a debt we could not pay, and so he paid a debt he did not owe. And because he has paid the debt he didn't owe, 
What we owe God has been taken by Christ. It has been credited to his account. And he has taken responsibility for payment of what we owe, and that is now credited to our account. Paul says, charge whatever he owes to my account, I will take responsibility for it. That is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was saying, what they owe, I will pay, so that what I deserve, I can give. That's the great exchange on the cross. Jesus gets my sin, I get his righteousness. What I have to pay is credited to his account and what he can pay is credited to my account. My sin for his righteousness. And Paul is saying in that very same way, I'm gonna pay what is owed by Onesimus so that he can be restored. And folks, I wanna tell you, one of the secrets to being able to be restored and reconciled to people who have hurt us is recognizing that the debt they owed has been paid by Jesus. And if it has been paid by Jesus, who am I to exact payment from then when the debt has been paid in full by Christ? It is our reconciliation, our call to restoration is gospel-centered. We're forgiving and being reconciled not because that person has paid us back, but because Christ has covered their sin. And so how can we hold against them what Christ has fully eliminated? And so there's one final instruction Verses 20 and 21, Paul says, number one, welcome him as you would welcome me. Number two, charge whatever he owes to my account. The debt's paid so you can be restored. The number three is verse 20, the command, refresh my heart in Christ. Verse 20, yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Forgiveness and reconciliation is as refreshing as a glass of cold water on a hot day. It is refreshing, isn't it? To forgive, to be forgiven, to be restored and reconciled. It is refreshing. What I want you to notice, Paul is saying, when you forgive Onesimus, it will refresh my heart. I, I, certainly that means that Paul's heart would be refreshed. But don't you remember, back in verse 12, I told you to pay attention to this phrase, how Paul has described Onesimus. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you. I am sending what? My very own heart. I, I think you can draw a line from verse 20 to verse 12. Because I think what actually Paul is, is appealing, he's, he's, there's a little play on words here. He's saying, when you forgive and are reconciled with Onesimus, not only will it refresh my heart, I'm actually asking you to refresh my heart, Onesimus. What Paul is asking Philemon to do is go above and beyond forgiveness, actually above and beyond restoration. He wants to move to refreshing. Philemon, I want you to forgive him, be restored to him, and I want you to refresh him. Boy, that, that's terminology that's used in the New Testament to describe our own relationship with God. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord. Paul now is writing to Philemon to say, I want you to be a source of refreshing for Onesimus. And folks, that really is the goal of Christian reconciliation, it's not merely releasing my right to revenge. It's not even merely 
having a restored relationship, it's actually getting to the point where I'm now a source of refreshing to the one I've forgiven. That I'm an instrument through which God blesses them. That's the goal, amen? And Paul is fully confident that Philemon will not only do that, but he will actually do more. Say, where do I get that? Verse 21, look at verse 21. He says, since I am confident of your obedience. I'm writing to you knowing, look at this, that you will even do more than I say. Paul, who's not demanded it as a law, instead appealed as an act of love. He says, I'm confident that you will forgive, be restored, refresh, and then you will go beyond that, whatever that looks like. Paul is so confident that he plans a visit Look at verse 22. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. Paul is so confident that Philemon is gonna do what he's asked on behalf of Onesimus, that Paul says, oh yeah, and I'm gonna come see you. So make sure you got a guest room ready. Now that would be a very awkward visit if Philemon ignored Paul. That's how confident Paul is that Philemon is gonna do what is consistent with his Christ-like character. He's a man of love. He's a man of faith. He's a man who wants to refresh the heart of the brothers. So Paul says, I'm fully confident you'll be restored. You'll be reconciled. And I'm so confident I'm gonna come and see you and I'm gonna stay at your house and you and I will be restored in that. Isn't that amazing? Reconciliation, folks, is beautiful. It's beautiful. And the the gospel, this is what the gospel does, right? The gospel can fix anything. The, The gospel is seen most powerfully when life is messed up, when things are broken, because the gospel tells us that Jesus can take broken things and mend them. I love the Japanese art of kintsugi. Some of you have seen kintsugi before. The Japanese have this, uh, this art practice where if they break uh, like a piece of pottery, you know, it's just shattered into all these different pieces. What normally I would do with that is just throw it away and discard it. They will actually take those broken shards of pottery and they will mend it, but they do it in a special way. I want you to see a picture of kintsugi. There's a broken bowl. And what the Japanese do, well, they'll, they'll take the, the broken pieces and they will put it back together with gold inlay. And it becomes a beautiful, precious piece of art with great value. It's got a history to it. You can see the the breaks, you can see the scars, but you also see how those scars have been mended, how someone has taken something that is broken and turned it into something beautiful. Folks, that's exactly what Jesus can do with your life. He can take however much of a mess that you might feel like you're in. If your life, you just say it's like in shattered, shards. You can be a trophy of God's grace where he mends and makes what's broken beautiful. There's still going to be traces of scars, but there's gold there as well. But but this is also a picture of what can happen in our relationships through Jesus. When people are full of grace They've experienced the grace of God themselves and then they're willing to extend the grace of God to others. God can mend what's broken and make something beautiful of it. 
Let me give you one illustration of that and then we're done. I know I'm out of time. Every, you know, every verse in your Bible is there on purpose. And there are a couple of verses at the end of this letter that we tend to just read right over. I don't want us to do that. I want you just, I want to point out one thing about it, two things about it, all right? Look at Philemon 23, 24, and 25. 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, 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 Mark. Pay attention to that name. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my coworkers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, right? So two things I'm gonna say. One, notice reconciliation is only possible through God's grace. You can see that, right? Paul begins and ends the same place, begins grace to you and peace from God our Father. He ends, grace be with your spirit, right? So we can only do this kind of restorative work in our relationships through God's grace. We have to experience it ourselves and then we have to be, a, a, having a, we have to be willing to have a, a generous heart that, that is grace giving to people. But I, I actually see an illustration of that in verse 24. No verse is in your Bible an accident. Every word matters. And so there's a name in this list of names. Paul is saying, hey, here's my coworkers. We're all bringing you greetings. But the name Mark is really meaningful because there's a history to Mark. There's a history between Paul and John Mark. John Mark, he, he wrote one of your gospels. Um, he was associated of the apostles but he is a little shady. He's got history. Here's the quick 30,000 foot view of Mark's history. His mom was wealthy, owned a large home and hosted a house church. You read about her in the book of Acts. John Mark is a young up and coming leader in the church and Paul uh, notices him and trains him and pours his life into John Mark. He's his apprentice. And they take a mission trip together with a man named Barnabas. And in the middle of that mission trip, John Mark, for some unknown reason, quits and goes back home and leaves Paul and Barnabas, really leaves them in a lurch. Now, we don't know why he quit. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was tired. Some people say maybe he missed his mother. We don't know. But in the middle of a mission trip, Mark throws in the towel and leaves Paul holding the bag while Mark goes back home. And that caused a serious rift in the relationship between Paul and Mark. But not only did it cause a rift there, it also caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas because what happens is later on, Paul's gonna take another missionary trip and Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Paul says, uh, no. And who can blame him, right? Like if you take a mission trip with me, and you quit in the middle on like day two, you're like, pastor, it's hot. It's not what I expected. I wanna go home to mommy. Like, okay, I'll probably put you on a plane and send you home, but I'm not taking you on the next mission trip. All right, that's it. Like that was your chance. I'm not giving you a second chance. Paul, that's Paul. He's a realist. No second chances for Mark. He kind of writes him off. But Barnabas believes in Mark. He's a son of encouragement and Barnabas is... He's not willing to give up on Mark. And so actually, Paul and Barnabas have a huge disagreement about how to handle Mark. It's such a big disagreement that Paul and Barnabas split ways. That's when Paul goes and recruits Timothy, right? You know the rest of the story. But the reason that Paul and Barnabas parted company was because they disagreed over what to do with Mark. So the name Mark, have you ever just known somebody that you, like because of drama, you just didn't even like the name anymore? 
Am I the only one? Like Mark, you know? It brings up bad memories. But folks, fast forward 20 years. Paul writes a letter to Philemon about the need to be restored in relationship. And you know who happens to be with Paul? Mark. We have no idea how he got there. No idea the story of the restored relationship. But at some point, Paul and Mark and Barnabas were reconciled. And I just think it's fascinating that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it happened to be Mark who was with Paul when he's writing to Philemon about the hope of restoration. Mark, a trophy of God's grace. So I want you to know you can do it. Not in your own strength, but by the grace of God, it's possible. Paul had experienced it. Philemon and Onesimus are gonna experience it as well. And you can experience it in your life. The gospel can fix anything. Amen? I invite you to bow with me for a moment. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, maybe you would say, Pastor, my life feels broken. We just tell you, your life can be restored in Christ. And so we'd love for you to experience that today as we end our service out in the lobby. There are decision prayer partners who can talk with you about how to know Jesus. If you, if you do know Jesus today, then let me just ask you, is there anyone in your life that you need to forgive? Release your right to revenge. More than that, is there anyone in your life to whom you need to be restored and reconciled? What would it look like not only to forgive and be reconciled, but actually to be a source of refreshing in that person's life, a conduit of God's blessing to them? The truth is all of us were once like Onesimus. We were all runaways. But someone on our behalf pleaded our case paying our debts. And through our advocate, we can be restored even to adoption as sons. So if we've been forgiven, we forgive. If we've been welcomed by God, we welcome others. Take a moment, just if there's a relationship that's hurt or fractured, would you just lift that up to the Lord in the quietness of this moment? And would you ask God to help you realize more fully what Jesus has done to restore you? Would you ask God to give you a heart of compassion for people who have hurt you? And then would you just ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to be an agent of grace in that person's life? Jesus, it's only possible through your grace. So we ask for that. Lord, help us in our relationships to forgive, to be restored, to be a source of refreshing all for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.